end almost any day, insults whole groups of people on the right and the left and between, says God will soon come and sort out all the wheat from the chaff, with the chaff off to the unquenchable fire. You might imagine why you, I don't like this guy. It could also be because I grew up in a small town in southeast Georgia nestled between the Okefenokee and the islands, and so I was uh, awash in a sea of Southern Baptists for whom this guy is a real saint. <laughs> and for whom my baptism was terribly flawed because it had something to do with sprinkling and not even being aware of what was going on. So sure, I appreciate that he's a prophet in a long line of Hebrew prophets, but I would not have a beer with this guy. <laughs> I have to give John a little credit today. Leaving his life in Nazareth and Galilee, his family, whatever he knows, and now suddenly he's gone from two days ago, being a baby that the wise men visited, to 30-ish. Jesus strides up to him by the river. John gets it right away. Maybe there's something in the way those eyes look into John. We don't know. But he senses, he knows, this man brings God near. This is backwards, he says, all backwards. You should baptize me. Bear with me. We need to do it this way. Jesus comes up out of the water, water running off his face and beard and eyes, and he looks again into John's eyes. The spirit, the voice, the words, this is my son whom I love. It's done. Jesus promptly leaves for the desert, where next week he'll be tempted, and we'll hear about that. After that, he begins his ministry, and hears at the outset that John's been arrested. No surprise there. Like any good prophet, John can't keep his mouth shut. He has the political subtlety of a sledgehammer. A true prophet in any age will slice through like a freshly sharpened knife all the everydayness that clutters our eyes, usually with painful clarity to say what we need but do not want to hear, that we fall short, that our faith is lacking, that our prayers are empty words, that something is wrong. This time, John's impolitic tongue has got him in trouble with the same Herod who down the road will mock Jesus at his trial. Here's what happened. Herod stops by his brother Philip's estate for a visit, during which time Herod and Philip's wife Herodias, well, embark on an affair right under Philip's nose. Now all these folks are Jews. Herod leaves Philip's palace. Herodias leaves with him. We know all this from Josephus, that first century Jewish historian. 
Herodias leaves with him, even though she's married to Philip, who hasn't divorced her. And soon Herodias and Philip are ensconced in one of his palaces, the one overlooking the Sea of Galilee from the cliffs. And all this comes as a bit of a surprise to Herod's actual wife, who needs the real housewives of Atlanta, right? <laughs> With Herod and Herodias carrying on so publicly and these shenanigans all over the place, John can't help himself. He's like a kid in a candy store. It's not lawful for you to have her. Technically, he's right. Says it right there in the Torah, Leviticus, twice, plain as day. You may not take your brother's wife. Angry, Herod tosses John in jail, but that's about all he can do, and John knows it. Josephus also tells us that John is very popular. He has a huge following, lots of disciples. Andrew, later a disciple of Jesus, is one of them. And many Jews in Judea and Jerusalem see him as a prophet and as a righteous man. And in those tumultuous times when there was revolt and discord all throughout the area, for Herod to do anything more than put John in time out would risk a riot. Could John have taken a little different tact? Maybe a sort of Psalm 1 approach? You know, Herod, the, the law is a gift from God and just as in the psalm, your people who follow it are trees planted by a beautiful stream. They grow, they prosper, they have fruit, they live long. Nope, not in John's playbook. So John steeps in a first century prison cell, which uh, with you, I imagine, is probably not all that pleasant of an experience. His disciples come to visit him from time to time, catching him up on this and that, and sometimes on that Jesus he baptized. At the outset, John is very excited. Jesus' very first words out of his mouth as he begins his ministry are John's words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But soon, John does not like what he hears about Jesus. In particular, he doesn't like that Jesus doesn't fast, doesn't follow the law very well, and eats and drinks and hangs out with sinners of all stripes, tax collectors, prostitutes, you know the cast of characters. This vexes John. Remember what John preaches. Very soon, any moment now, God is going to come and eradicate all the evil in the world. He's going to put the ax to the root God will sort the wheat and the chaff. So repent, follow the way of the Lord, make yourselves pure in these last days. John calls us, all those who come to him from Jerusalem and Judea, and apparently it was a big crowd, to an intense Jewish piety for the end times. Get your righteousness on, folks. To translate into Episcopalian, attend the Eucharist regularly, read the Bible, use the daily devotionals, page 136, and the prayers and thanksgivings, I call them the 1-800 prayers, they're on 814 in the Book of Common Prayer, fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, tithe, give up something for Lent, 
do good works. It's fair to say that anybody who shows up when the temperature is in the teens probably is already in that camp, but that's what John <laughs> preached. <clears throat> Practically speaking, it's hard to argue with John on this, as the very popular um, uh, DJ Khaled now says, and he's not talking about the weather, it's a cold world. Bundle up. Key. In other, in other words, these spiritual practices, and they take practices, are ways of bundling ourselves up for a cold world. But, and maybe this is what John misses, they're only a means of grace, not an end in themselves. Hearing all that Jesus is up to and being vexed by it, John sends his disciples to him. Ask him this. Why do your disciples not fast like we do, like the Pharisees do? How can you fast when the bridegroom is here? Jesus says, you can fast later. And who puts new wine in old wineskins anyway? When John's disciples report back to him in prison, it must have felt like a punch in the gut. He gets the slight. John's the old wineskin. Jesus, the new wine. Now he's in an obsessive stall. He's angry. There are rivers of Puritan righteousness running through his veins. He sends his disciples back again to Jesus, this time to confront him. Ask him this, are you the one or should we expect another? Sounds rhetorical to me. Not defensive, Jesus responds anyway. Tell John this, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the lepers are clean, the dead are raised, the poor hear good news. And seeing what is in John's heart, Jesus says, and tell John, blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. As much as I dislike John, it's painful to see him so imprisoned by his expectations for who Jesus should be, for what the kingdom of heaven is about. Jesus should not be eating with drinking with sinners. He should put the ax to the root, separate wheat and chaff. He should fast. He should keep kosher. John does take offense at Jesus. How hard it is for him and for us to see, to really see Jesus. Is it the ordinary but terrible egoism we all have sometimes that keeps John and us from finding a path to humility or generosity, to openness? 
Maybe each of us just creates a Jesus in our own image. One who shares our opinions, shares our prejudices, votes like us. Perhaps John is constitutionally unable to let his expectations of Jesus go. Worried about this for me, it's been no comfort that the two jobs I've had in life, uh, for 10 years I was an ordained Methodist minister, and for almost 25 now a practicing lawyer, are two that Jesus notoriously did not get along with. Maybe I'm constitutionally unable like John. Whatever the reason, our expectations for who Jesus should be and for what the kingdom should look like can harden our hearts, can make us miss what is right in front of our eyes. Here is God in flesh, blood, sinew, looking deep into John's and our eyes, into ourselves, bringing us truth and grace, which we can only and wonderfully drown in. This is my son whom I love. Do we, like John, cling to those expectations for Jesus as though our very faith depends on it? It does not. Or can we take a deep breath, relax our clenched hands, let our expectations go? It is hard, but we'll be okay. On a far more mundane level, we as a parish and as individuals in these pews will, over the next few months, in year, have the chance to let go of some of our expectations for our next rector. Will she be a brilliant preacher? Will she have a raucous sense of humor? Will she fit our personality like a glove? Will she be unfailingly kind? Will she be a she? Sydney and I joined All Saints in 1985, and we have seen over the years the capacity of this parish to show grace to rectors and priests that other parishes cannot even begin to fathom. But even so, we bring expectations. Some are healthy, some are downright neurotic, to the doorsteps of our rectors and our priests especially in this age where it's so easy to fall into the trap of being a religious consumer instead of a grown-up person of faith. So we can anxiously cling, even defiantly cling, to our expectations for the next rector, but we'll have a chance to set all that aside, all that we expect, all that we want, all that we so need, to get a fully human being, flesh, bone, sinew, and I'm sure broken like each of us is broken in our own way. This is not a sentimental welcome, Matt. Far from it. To let go of our expectations, to open our hearts up 
This is the hard work of making room for the Spirit to move among us. We will be okay. All saints will be okay. Back to John. It's Herod's birthday feast. Herodias' daughter, Salome, we get her name from Josephus, dances for the guests. She so delights her, all the guests and her stepfather, you can tell Herod's had too much wine, that he vows to give her anything she wants, expecting, since she's just a girl, she'll ask for a pony <laughs> or to go to the fifth grade dance with a boy she really likes. Overwhelmed, Salome rushes to her mother, Herodias, still wounded by John. She whispers, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. This is a good way to break up a dinner party. <laughs> too drunk or too spineless to say no to this outrageous request and fearing to be embarrassed in front of his guest, Herod sends a soldier to John's prison cell. Check out online Titian and Caravaggio's paintings of this beautiful, painful scene. John's biding his time. He's going to get out. After all, he only said to Herod what was in the Torah, what was true. When the soldier arrives, has John let go of his expectations for Jesus, sending them flying like dry leaves in a cold wind, opening himself really to see Jesus, to let good news break into his heart? Or does John stubbornly cling to his expectations, righteous mind that he is, absolutely convicted that he is right? It's hard to know. Amen. <laughs>